Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I am Aaron Watson and my guest today is Christy Woolsey of Maya Design. Christy has crafted a really interesting career arc, jumping from architecture to management consulting to her current role where she beautifully blends both roles and both experiences into a unique career that is focused on crafting the future of work and designing workplaces of the future to meet the needs of the modern employee. I learned a ton from talking with her and I'm really, really excited to share this episode with you. Before we jump into it, I need to ask that if you have not already done so, please subscribe. Make sure that you stay up to date with all future episodes, whether it's on Stitcher or iTunes or whatever pod player you're using. And also, if you have been listening for a while and enjoying this show, please jump over and give us a five-star rating and review. That helps the show grow, helps it reach a larger audience, and is a nice little thank you for all the work we've been doing to put out these episodes. So I'd really, really appreciate that. But I'm not going to go on any further and just let you enjoy my interview with Christy Woolsey. So, Christy, thank you so much for coming on my show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. There is a a ton that I want to break apart, and we were talking a little bit beforehand about how you've really kind of blazed a unique trail to get where you are right now. Uh, But to start things off, I just want to give you the opportunity to talk about what you're currently doing with Maya Design, what your role is, and and a little bit more about what you do there. So Maya Design, for people who who don't know, is basically about 50 crazy smart, crazy creative people who get together to solve really complex problems. Um, And so companies will come to Maya with problems that need a human scientist and a visual designer and a business strategist and all these different people. And, you know, kind of a team of Mayans get assembled and kind of thrown in a room to be creative about how to solve this problem. Um, And so my role there is to really talk about how environment uh, can drive human behavior Um, in order to deliver on the promise of that solution. So for companies that are um, growing really fast or um, need to scale, you know, but don't have, um, don't want to scale in the digital world as well as the physical world. Um, For um, real estate developers that are trying to develop a piece of land that won't even see construction for five years, really helping them understand, well, what will people be wanting in terms of workplace and living places? Um, And even helping um, with, uh, we're doing some work with a museum. Um, What does an exhibit look like if it's digital slash physical? How does that, how does that interact? So, um, so Maya brought me in to really focus on environment, physical, digital, and cultural, and link those environments to behavior. For sure. I mean, uh, the one thing that really resonates with me there that I've seen is kind of the change in workplaces and and how the prototypical workplace looks. So friends at Yelp, friends at other different kind of like techie startups versus friends who maybe are working in a bank or working in... uh, 
you know, an older corporation that's really maybe not behind the times, but working to catch up to some of these more cutting edge companies. And one of the things I always notice is like the open, open floor design and kind of the removal of the cubicle idea, so to speak. So is that, is that kind of what you're talking about as far as the future of offices or what else goes into maybe just that example specifically? So what's interesting right now is this is an area that I've been interested in and, and kind of working in for about 20 years. And in the last 10 years, it's become really popular. And so there are lots and lots of companies that are offering workplace strategy. And the difference between that and what I do is everything that I do is, is research-based, science-based. So I'm really looking deeply at, at anthropology, at sociology, at psychology, and kind of going, how does the physical space drive behavior? So we know that people actually focus and learn better alone. We also know that they are more likely to collaborate if they bump into each other. And so the ideal solution in my mind is that every office will have some percentage of open space and some percentage of closed space. Only what's happening out there in the real world is that there are older companies with people who are scared to death to get out of their private offices, right? So there's a big battle going on. Um, and then there are a lot of companies that are going, no, 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 you have to get out of your office. And they yank everybody out of their office and put everybody in an open space. And suddenly people are leaving or failing. And you know, people ask me, they're like, well, what do you think is better, open or closed space? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, the physical space really does drive human behavior. Um, one of the easiest examples for people to understand is there's been a lot of studies done that talk about how people actually conceptualize better under high ceilings and they focus and make decisions better under low ceilings. So you're like, oh, okay, maybe. Look at every car dealership you've ever been in, every like big chain furniture store you've ever been in. That ceiling is high when you walk in. It's as high as they can afford and yeah. make it. And that helps you to imagine yourself in a new car or imagine yourself in a house full of furniture right? But when it's time to pick the color, sign the paper, do the thing, they take you into the smallest space that you'll put up with yeah. because you will make decisions faster. If they sat you down on a little table next to that car you just decided to buy and had you making decisions, you might actually change your mind because you're still in concept land, right? You're still going, well, maybe not the blue one, maybe the red one, or maybe a totally different thing, right? So all that science is there based on retail. Um, in fact, the core of the science is <laughs> retail and behavioral management in prisons. That's where the core of the science is. But a lot of that science can actually be applied to the office today, right? So that's what I'm really interested in is, is kind of working backwards from what, what, is, what are the behaviors you need to be successful? You know, is it collaboration? Is it innovation? Do you need, do you need your team to be learning? You know, like lawyers do a lot of learning, right? Don't yank your lawyers out of their private offices and put them at open desk, right? Because learning happens better alone, right? So anyway, so it's really going from results and then working backwards, these are the results you want. So then this is the culture you need. And if that's the culture you need, culture is really a collection of, of behaviors. Then this is the individual behavior you need. And what are the environments that we can create that make it more likely for you to get to those? I can't make people behave in a certain way, but I can influence them so that they're more likely to choose that path. So that's the work that I do is really kind of designing that almost environment strategy to get people to choose the behaviors that you need to get results. And it seems like you'd also be really doing a lot of teaching to the management teams so that once you kind of hand off the office space and the and the company culture to them, they can use some of these principles to apply to their teams and, and be more effective. Well, when I use the word environment, I mean, not just physical space, but clearly in today's age, um, physical and digital space are a, continu or a continuation of each other. So the workplace, physical and digital, I also mean organizational structure, 
You know, are you in six-person teams or 20-person teams? Who do you report to? Is it hierarchical? I mean, that's part of the environment. I also mean technology. What are the tools and systems that you're working with, right? And I also mean programs and amenities, which is everything from, you know, there's free coffee in the kitchen to we're going to have a, a marketing meeting every Monday morning, right? So all of those things are part of the environment. And so one of the things I figured out early in my career, and I am an architect by training, um, is that... I, you couldn't get there with just the physical space. I could make you an amazing space and then walk away and nothing happens, right? So I really had to kind of move into more management consulting in order to make those spaces successful. So I do a lot of, of teaching, training. I have, I've got a, a kind of a standard workshop that I do usually at the beginning of a project um, where I teach people about behavioral trends in the future of work, right? Because um, sometimes when an office, when a, uh, a company is considering a new space, they, they'll kind of look around, they do one of two things. Either they look around their office and they say, oh, we have three conference rooms now, we're going to need five next year, right? Maybe you don't need any. Maybe we're all, you know, conferencing virtually, right? Um, so if they understand the future of work, then they become better clients. And then the other um, kind of corporate reaction is, we don't know what we need. So we're going to go look at some design magazines, and we're going to copy that which is not right for their space. So I do this uh, workshop on the future of work so that people, I can teach you to know what you need, right? Because I don't know what you need, but I can teach you enough that you can project your company into the future and say, ah, you know what? If asynchronous communication is one of the key behavioral trends for the future, what does that mean for me? What does it mean for my employees, my competitors, and how we might work in the future? And therefore, do I need a conference room? I can make that decision. Right? So there is a lot of teaching involved, a lot of culture change, design, uh, change management, you know, getting people aligned behind the kinds of changes that you need to make. Um, so it's a lot of people work. In, in terms of getting that information about what the future of work looks like, you talked about anthropology, sociology as these kind of guiding studies, but in terms of how you're getting your information. So as a thought leader, as someone who's leading people down this path, where are you collecting and gathering your information? Where are you doing your learning so that you can provide that vision for other people? So I have a, I have a couple of places. Um, one is I'm just, I'm really interested in the future. I have been for years. And so I'm an early adapter. You know, I'm always kind of like, oh, wait, I never heard of this, whatever. I just, this morning, I'm like, IdeaPod. It's this thing in Australia where people are just posting ideas up on the web, like for no, you know, they're just sharing ideas. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. I'm going to check it out. You know, some of it is just me wandering around, bumping into things. Um, you know, the, the, there are times that you search for information because you're looking, you put in a search word and that's a specific thing you want. But I do an awful lot of just wandering around looking for things that I didn't set out to find. Um, and so that's one way that I find things. And then another way um, is I do attend a lot of conferences. Um, I'll do, I mean, I don't know, some people would say a lot, but I'll do, a, I, I speak at a lot of conferences. So, so I, I get that part, but I'll usually do two or three extra a year that are just conferences on topics that I'm interested in. And I try to attend conferences that are not necessarily in my industry, right? Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a tech person, but I went to the Business of Software conference, right? Because I'm really interested in knowing like what, what's going on here. And in, in, in Pittsburgh, I went to the big data conference that the, the Technology Council had um, a couple months ago. And I, and I go listen to people who are looking at life from a different angle. And it kind of just puts more meaning in that, you know, 
cauldron of meaning and then I can pull out connections and I go, well, if this person says this and then this, I don't know, this software guy says this and this ballet dancer says this and this, you know, construction guy says this, that's really interesting because if you look at those three things together, you can kind of see where there's this pattern starting to emerge. So I'm deliberately seeking out things that are, are outside of my core area. Absolutely. I, th- I think that's a great point in terms of having kind of different siloed areas of focus and, you know, some insight that was found over here can be applied other places and being that type of connector can be really valuable. I want to kind of take things back now a little bit. You mentioned the background in architecture. You mentioned that you had that realization that you needed to kind of get into management consulting and work on the people side of things as well. Can you just take us back to after going through school, studying architecture, and when you kind of realized that you wanted to make the move into management consulting? Well, I'm actually going to, um, I'm going to pop back before that, because I think Perfect. it's, it, I think it's a piece of, um, so when I, uh, when I was young, I paint, or okay. like I, so I paint like brushes and canvas and all that kind of thing. And my parents looked at me and I think they were really, really scared I was going to be an artist and that they would support me for the rest of my life. And so when I was 15, they got the local town architect to hire me to, I don't know, take out the trash and he has the phones. And it turned out like that was pretty cool. And so I signed up for tech drawing class. And that's how I got into architecture, which I think is really interesting when parents are kind of watching what their kids are doing. And then from architecture school, I was actually through a bizarre series of events offered a uh, uh, offered a position as faculty at uh, Arizona State. And if you are faculty, you have to publish your parish, right? You have to do research. And the area of research I chose, because I was, I was interested way back then, was the impact that the physical environment has on human behavior. And initially, I was researching things like wayfinding, you know, how do I, how do I influence the fact that you're going to turn left or right, and that kind of thing. And I'm um, doing some research around how do we um, position retail so that you, you know, stay longer and buy more simply by the lighting or whatever. Um, so a lot of my research was in that area. And I got tired of talking about it and I wanted to actually go out and experiment on people. <laughs> and so I first dropped back to halftime and then I went to full, and then I went and then I stopped completely um, and launched my own architecture company. Um, and what's interesting about being an entrepreneur when you're passionate about something is you pretty quickly figure out that you, um, that your passion is not necessarily the same as marketing, sales, making payroll, managing people, blah, blah, blah. And so for the next few years, I was kind of learning how to run a business. And in that process, I realized that I really liked the business side of things. And I started working the business angle. And we were at that point, we, um, I kept adding things to stabilize the business. And we started doing interior design, you know, selling furniture, doing, well, I had three construction crews. Um, so we were, we were pretty robust. And I was learning how to run a business. And I was in some ways experimenting on my own people, right? Because I could rearrange, I was the boss, right? So I could rearrange their desks and see, are my own people actually working better together? Are they, whatever. And what I started to realize through that experience is that I could only get so far with the physical environment. And I had to add in these other pieces, you know, the org structure, programs, amenity, that kind of thing. Um, And then I was very fortunate to be hired by a CEO who really believed in the power of aligning all of those things. And um, he hired me, but he was my co-pilot. You know, I, we, so we did a significant intervention in his company um, with fantastic financial results. And that was kind of in my mind, that was like, okay, so I don't want to be an architect anymore. This is what I want to do. I want to, I want to take a position. And, and it took me a while to kind of move over. I, I, um, I ended up 
you know, kind of dismantling my company and and um, took a position in San Diego for a little while. And then I, I took a position in Washington, D.C., interestingly enough, working with a company that does culture change for federal agencies. And I figured if I could learn how to do culture change in federal agencies, I could do culture change anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, and then, uh, and somewhere in the midst of that journey, I started talking to Maya. With my background, um, people either wanted to hire me as an architect, in which case they wouldn't let me do the management consulting, or they wanted to hire me as a management consulting, in which case they wouldn't let me touch the physical space. And Maya is a human-centered design company, and they had always done human-centered, so that's the kind of design consulting, and actually making products. And so I approached them and I said, hey, I think I would fit here. And they said, hey, we think you would too. Um, and, and so we talked and they brought me in and they said, you know, we're going to, we've been doing environments for a little while, but it hasn't had a champion. And we would like to actually launch officially a creative environments practice. You want to be here? And uh, I looked around and I, Pittsburgh was not what I thought it was. It is an, definitely an unkept secret. And uh, um, it's been great. So I'm happy here and ready to see what happens next. <laughs> That's really cool. I want to unpack just a little bit more about you starting your own firm there for a while uh -huh. and how that came to be. You know, you talked about these iterations you're practicing with your staff and you're adding different components of the business. When you had this realization that, or maybe not realization, this decision to close up shop and move into this other area, I think that's that's kind of a area that doesn't get explored very mm -hmm. often. There's the exploration of the failed business and right. there's the ex exploration of the business that gets sold. But the decision that, you know, I just need to move on to the next thing, the next stage and what it's like. Can you just talk a little bit about how that worked as far as did you hand it off? Did you give a warning uh, that this might be wrapping up? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, there were a couple of um, kind of shocks to the system. We had at our at our largest, we had about um, 30 people working for us. And uh, that was right about when 9-11 happened. Um, and on 9-12, almost all of my clients and projects went on hold. And as a relatively young business owner, I just didn't move fast enough. It, that I kept thinking we were going to recover. We were going to... So within six months, I was actually... I no longer had 30 people working for me. I had about 15. Um, and it turned out that I was much, much happier running a team of 12 to 15 people. So we just... We kind of sat at that size for a while. And then in uh, probably 2006 was when I started to go, you know what? I, I'm done. You know, we... we We've had a good run. I made a great company. We've been published. You know, you know, we've been on HGTV. Ooh, you know, we, you know, I've done everything I wanted to do, but I'm yeah. not quite ready to die. So, what do I want to do next? And um, so, um, at that point, I I actually got a coach, a life coach, um, and I thought I wanted to leave architecture completely behind. Like, I don't want to do architecture anymore. I'm done. Should I go back to school? Maybe I'll go get my arts degree. Maybe I'll, I don't know what I want to do. Um, you go through these periods in life when you just have no clue who you are. And I actually remember saying that to my dad, who was like in his 70s at the time or whatever. And he said, he said, oh, he said, I still haven't figured it out. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, really? <laughs> my whole life, I'm going to be trying to figure out who I am. And apparently that's true. Like every, you know, for, for people who don't settle, I think every few years you get this itch to be the next thing and figure out that next move. So anyway. 
So, um, so at that point, I actually started winding the firm down deliberately. Um, and we had, you know, we had architecture, interior design, right. So the easy piece to do was to stop doing construction. Um, we finished up some projects and, and the guy who was running it kind of wanted to take that piece. So that was a kind of an easy spin out. Um, and we started doing more and more furniture because that was easy. And I started taking on less projects. So it was just kind of winding it down. And at the same time, I was ramping up the kinds of projects that I wanted to be doing. So the company didn't actually... It still had the same name. We still had the same website. Um, we were just really changing our, our client base. And I was being very selective about taking on clients. And sometimes, like even clients who would come to me because they wanted me as an architect, I would reframe the problem for them and kind of like, yes, yes, yes. Yes, you know, you have eight buildings on 32 acres of land and you have to figure out which ones you're going to get rid of. Yes, you have to do that. But let's do that in a smart way. Let's figure out what your business problem is first and then that will give us a criteria for solving this other problem. So even people who would come to me as an architect, I would turn around and turn it into a management consulting gig. And so that's really how that, that's how that transition really happened. That's fascinating. I, I, that's just, uh, like I said, something that doesn't get unpacked too often. So, so I appreciate that. Catching back up to the work you're doing now with Maya, can you, and you mentioned that you're going to these conferences, you're giving speeches about the future of work and what workplaces look like. To get a little more granular and specific, what are some of the trends that you see happening that you are actively preparing companies for? So the biggest thing that I think is uh, coming, first off, um, there's a lot more collaboration. Like, Like you can't be competitive if you haven't figured out how to leverage different people from different backgrounds and put them together. That's where, it, that's where innovation is most likely to happen. Um, so that's very easy to say, but um, we as human beings prefer to be with our own kind. That's just nature. Um, there's some behavioral studies with preschoolers and different color t-shirts that, you know, basically we're going to always like the people in our color t-shirt better than we like people who are in a different color t-shirt. So then how do you empower um, the kind of minority dissenting opinion? That's something that I think people are really having to think about. And then what are the environments that make it more likely that people will actually be friends? Because there's a lot of studies about group dynamics that talk about, I am more likely to be friends with you if I run into you at a coffee shop every day than if we have everything in common, but I have to seek you out to see you. So making sure that the environment is creating opportunities for people to have those casual encounters is critically important. So that's kind of a in the weeds answer. Um, a, A kind of a higher level answer is in terms of knowledge work, and this isn't true of everyone, but in terms of knowledge workers, what I think we are moving to is a day and age where we will, most of us be independent contractors. Okay. And we will come together to do a particular project and then we will disperse And so companies have to figure out how to manage contractors just like they manage employees. I think that we will, whether we're contractors or employees, I think that we will end up choosing when and where we want to work based on the work that we have to do that day. So if we need to collaborate, maybe we go to the office. If we need to write or focus or read or code, maybe we don't, or maybe we go to some other place. So I think it's going to be much more um, fluid and that the real challenge of companies going forward is figuring out how the heck do you manage that? You know, you think it's hard to manage people now. <laughs> you know, we're, we're going to turn them all loose. And how do you coordinate those efforts? So I think that's that's a real trend that I'm watching that companies are having to design 
all kinds of systems for. Yeah. An- another thing, I've read uh, some of the work of Jason Fried from, from Basecamp and 37 Signals, and he's a big proponent of remote work. So getting to maximize the amount of talent that you can access. So instead of saying I can only recruit people who are living in Pittsburgh because my office is in Pittsburgh, let's get people from all over the country who are as highly qualified as possible. And, the, and he talks about the strategies around that. And so that's kind of coming from a different place where you're a startup where that's a part of the culture of that company is we're a remote company. There's a, a the founders completely bought into that idea. But then there's these other large organizations who are potentially transitioning into this reality where a portion or a majority of their workforce is moving virtual and they can work from home or they can work from a coffee shop. So that that's that's really interesting to me is that when when you're talking with different decision makers are you do you find yourself often saying like this is what's coming and there's some pushback or some like surprise or do they kind of see it coming and they're more concerned about well what are we going to do actually i get both okay um and one of the things that happens a lot of times when i when i'm giving this future of work talk i'll ask a company like i need leadership to be in the room but give me some high potential people that you think are the next generation of leaders. And I'll start the talk while I'll say, okay, so for those of you who are going to listen to this talk and, and think that I'm just, I've lost my mind, I'm way out there, I'm picking outliers. I just want to pound out to you that if you're over 50, you're going to think I'm crazy. And if you're under 30, you're going to think I'm not being cutting edge enough, right? So there is this kind of gap in an understanding of where the world is going. So now let's now let's learn and let's compare notes between generations and, and, and you'll figure out what's right for you. So that is something that we look for. The other thing that, um, uh, the other thing that I was going to talk about a little bit is I, I absolutely believe that distributed teams are the way that things are going. And the, the challenge in that is that one of the reasons that offices even should exist, I think, in the future is that it's this idea of not having a specific search. When I go to an office, I can I might overhear a conversation because I'm not going for a particular thing. It's overheard. It's something I bump into. So one of the um, pieces of advice that I give to distributed teams, because I also work with distributed teams and hybrid teams are even more difficult where you've got part the team distributed and part not, is how do you, how do you make that opportunity for me to overhear a conversation. And I think some, there's tools like Slack that actually make that really easy to do, right? I want to overhear a conversation. I can see something's going on in a channel that's maybe not one I always look at, but I'm kind of interested. And wait, there's a lot of heat in this channel. Maybe I want to go check out what are people talking about over there? I'm like, oh, I don't know anything about Hadoop, but that's a really interesting conversation, right? So I think, I think what we need to do as we move into digital space and distributed teams and hybrid teams is to remember that we need the same things. And I'll tell you a little story. I did a, um, I did an interview with um, Automatic. They're the, the company that makes um, WordPress websites. They're the WordPress people. They are a fully distributed team with now at this point, they have over 400 employees. And what they found was the most important thing that they could do once a year, they have a one week meeting at some resort somewhere in the world. And it is not optional. Every employee has to attend. And it's not a meeting full of like rah, rah business. Let's do a strategic plan. The goal of the meeting, there's two kinds of activities that happen. One is anybody in the company can put on a little seminar, right? So maybe I'm teaching big data or maybe I'm holding a yoga class, right? But the secondary goal is to get people to play together. Because the next time I'm sitting in Pittsburgh and my teammate who's in Germany and my other teammate in Japan 
we're actually laughing about that time we tried to surf, you know, and it's, it's a, it's social cohesion, which is, which is a huge, uh, the major um, influencer of team performance. And I'll, my, um, there's a group called the Center for Evidence-Based Management and uh, 2014, they took 800 studies on knowledge worker performance and um, kind of cross-referenced them. And they did about 30 meta studies. And what they came out of it as a pattern was that the top issues for team performance, number one is social cohesion. So if you have a distributed team, you have to figure out how am I going to build social cohesion? Number two was perceived supervisory support, right? So if you're a manager, do your people actually know that you support them? Are you providing them with the resources and training and whatever that they need, you know? Um, So those two exist, whether you're physical world or digital world. And, and I think that the trick um, the the big trend moving forward is for managers to really start thinking about how do I do these things in both spaces in a way that sp- supports my entire team. I, I think that there's definitely, you know, being this younger generation that thinks there's this ble- bleeding edge that we can get to. I think a mistake that sometimes gets get gets made that you're really harping on is we're never going to be able to really replace the experience of being in the same place, looking someone in the eye, human to human interaction. And we can Google Hangout, we can Skype, we can do these different things, but it's not going to create that same experience. So I don't, um, <laughs> I'm going to surprise you by saying, I don't know that that's true, Okay. but I think that it's going to be, um, I think that what we replace it with is when we actually get um, virtual reality that has some haptic to it. Yeah. Right. So we, we may not be literally physically present, but we are in essence physically present, you know, because there is that there is that the body language, the reading of another human being yeah. that we get so much communication from, you know, sure. and then there is the laughing together. And the I mean, that's the social cohesion. That's the reason for automatic doing these things where they make people who don't surf go surfing, you know, <laughs> you know? so that I mean, you, you need to fail a little bit. You need to laugh. You need to feel like you can take a risk and that you don't have your mask, your professional mask on all the time you know those are the people you want to work with absolutely uh i want to start wrapping up here but i just gotta say christy i've learned so much from listening to you and learning from you to here today i'm sure the audience is feeling the same way uh before we tell people how to connect with you in the digital world and you issue the personal challenge is there anything i just didn't give you a chance to say no this has actually been great fun (laughs) (laughs) i'm good well i've had fun as well we'll have to do this again sometime but uh if people want to learn more about maya or more about you uh, and find you in the digital world, where's the best place to do that? So you get to Maya by going to maya.com, M-A-Y-A.com. Um, and you can find me through that website and information on me. But you can get to me by um, through Twitter easily. Um, and it's at Christy Woolsey, K-R-I-S-T-I-W-O-O-L-S-E-Y. As always, that will be linked to in the show notes at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast, along with the show notes for every episode. But we're going to give the mic Back to Christy one last time to issue a personal challenge to the audience. Okay, so my challenge, I I found that in a lot of my life, the boundaries to my getting to the next step are completely invented in my own brain. And I learned a lot about how to manage that. I was working with a coach whose name is Chris Doris, fabulous guy. You can Google search him too. And he told me a story about one time he was coaching a, a swimmer who wanted to make the um, state championships. And he started working with this kid. And he said, so you want to make state championships? And the kid said, yeah. And Chris was like, okay. But not nationals, right? Not nationals. 
Like it's like, no, 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 I'll tell you. Yeah, no, let's uh, nationals. That'd be great. Okay. Okay. Well then we'll work towards getting you comfortable with winning nationals, but you don't want to go to the Olympics. Well, oh my God, of course I want to go to the Olympics. And I find that sometimes when I'm shooting for state championships, I really want to go to the Olympics, but I'm afraid to put that out there because I don't want to be disappointed. And so my challenge for the audience is the next time you're thinking, I want to do this, ask yourself, is there more? Is there something else? What is my Olympics? And can I remove my own mental boundaries that are keeping me from getting there? So that's my two cents. I absolutely love that. I know for sure that that is uh, something I've struggled with and continue to to work with. But uh, I think the the audience will definitely value from taking that challenge and aiming higher. Uh, We just went deep with Christy Woolsey of Maya Design. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Thank you so much to Christy for coming on the show. I really appreciate it and learned a ton. Once again, please make sure you subscribe if you've not already done so. And if you think that this episode has been really interesting, that Christy had a lot of value to add and that you learned a lot from her, please consider sharing this with one friend. If you do that and copy me in the email, I'd love to interact with uh, new potential listeners. And I think it could be a really valuable way to help someone who may be in the world of consulting or design get a new idea for a potential arc that their own career could take. So if you do that, that'd be great. But either way, thank you so much for listening. And make sure you check out our next episode with Todd Treseder of FinancialMentor.com.